This question is from Nicholas Daraj. He says, it would be interesting to hear you elaborate and explain on thinking from principles instead of from concretes, why we do the latter and give examples of how to start doing more of the former, as well as real life examples of the process and differences it might lead to. First of all, um, he asked several of the previous questions and I forgot to give his name. So to give credit, those were the ones about make objectivism great again and about Popper and Rand and whether I'm an objectivist. Now, the first thing I want to say about this question is a tangent about the why we do the latter comment. And first, I'm going to tangent on my tangent and say why I do tangents. Um, part of my goal with the podcast and with my work in general is to share my perspective and how I think, because I think it's valuable and insightful. And hopefully you at least find it interesting. And I commonly look at tangents of things. I look at things from a different angle. I don't just straightforwardly say it's about this, I'll deal with that. Um, I try to think outside the box and see if anything interesting comes up. And I think there are a lot of important things that aren't the main focus and get glossed over. Um, but they're worth knowing about. Like, saying things like why we do X is quite a common thing. Like, I think that's an important cultural issue that, to me, I think is actually more important to know about than the actual question. Like, the question's pretty good, but I think this, this sort of psychological thing is a big deal and comes up a lot. So, saying why we do the latter is a social manipulation. It is using psychological tricks to try to influence what people think or control them or uh, pressure them or that kind of thing. It makes it harder for them to think for themselves and form their own opinions. It makes it harder for them to disagree or dissent. It's also a little bit collectivist because we don't all do the same things. We're different. We're individuals. People vary. So grouping everyone together into a we, I just don't like a lot in general. But the main reason people talk like this is it makes it harder to object to. If you tell someone you have X flaw, a lot of times they'll say, no, I don't. But if you tell them we have X flaw, a lot of times they'll be more open to it. Even though it's both times you're communicating that they have the same flaw. And so it's manipulative to say it in the way that gets people to react differently. When you say it as their problem, a lot of times they assume that you mean it's only their problem. It's their personal problem. It's their individual problem. Okay, so that's misleading, and you want to avoid that miscommunication. But when you say it's our problem, first of all, a lot of times people do this. They mean it's other people's problems. They don't actually mean themselves. They're just lying. 
I don't think that this questioner is doing that, but in general, people do that constantly. And it's harder to stand up to why we do something. It doesn't come off as like an accusation that you can just like fight back against. It comes off as a statement about the world rather than a statement about the person you're talking to. That makes it harder for them to object to it or dissent. Um, and often, so when you when you say someone has a flaw, normally that's like the main point of the sentence. It's the focus. You don't say it in passing. People do say it in passing, and that's passive aggressive and shitty. But there's a lot of times where you directly tell someone, like, I think you have X flaw. And you can give extra information, like, I don't think it's an uncommon flaw. I don't think it's a rare flaw. You know, I think it's a common flaw. I'm just saying you have it. You know, you can qualify if you want to avoid miscommunication. But you're directly making, like, the main point of your communication is to tell them about the flaw. Whereas with the we do X kind of thing, very frequently, it's, um, it's snuck in there as like a premise. It's like, we do X, everyone knows that, what do we do about it? Like, and the question, the main thing you're talking about is something else, like what do we do about it? Um, rather than just, is that the case at all? You know, it's trying to skip the step of considering whether we actually do it and move on to the step of what to deal, do about it. That's really common and you see that here. Like, if we do it, it's not in question, it's just being taken for granted. And when you say we do something, it's setting it up. So if someone says, I don't, then everyone's going to think, why are you so special? It's set up for there to be social pressure against dissenting in an individual way and saying you're different than the group. So that's one of the reasons that makes it harder to dissent. Now, you could avoid that and say, you know, I don't think we do that. You could dissent for everyone at once, but that's hard, like, because then you're speaking for other people and you're talking about a lot of people. A lot of times people do this kind of thing. Um, it's stuff that I would say the majority of people do, right? If you say why we do X and it's something that only 10% of people do, you're going to sound dumb. So people are usually doing this with stuff that's common. So if the dissenter wants to say we don't do that, he's going to seem unreasonable because the majority of people do do that. So he either needs to dissent individually or which, which sets up like an individual versus the group dynamic and um, socially heavily pressures him and makes it like he's losing the popularity contest and he's the weird outlier, the outcast, etc. The black sheep. Yeah. If, if you say, I don't, you're, you're coming out as the black sheep, like is that kind of dynamic. Um, but you don't want to say like we don't when the majority of people do. So you have to say something more nuanced like, well, some people do that, but a lot don't. And then you're starting to get into details and you're already conceding half the point that a lot of people do it. And you get less of like a clean objection and there's more distractions and it's, it's a harder thing to do. So less people do it because um, whenever it's harder to do something, fewer people are going to do it because they don't know how or they avoid difficulty. Or And a lot of these conversations happen in voice in real time. And if it gets harder, then it takes people longer to figure out how to do it. 
and then the conversation passes them by and they miss the window. Because it's, it's very hard to object to this kind of thing like 20 seconds later. Um, you need to object like right away. And if you haven't done it right away and then they keep saying other things, um, then it, socially it's much harder to object. And, and then what do you do? Do you explain like, well, I had to think about it and now I've decided you're wrong. And, and now you're, if you do that, you're putting a lot of pressure on yourself. Like this is your well-considered opinion. Like you're, you're now going to be held to a higher standard. And it's like weird that you are slow. Like there's a lot of very unreasonable expectations about how fast people can think and answer things in conversations. Like everyone just responds really fast to stuff in verbal chats. And they all pretend that they're thinking things through when they're talking way too fast to have given it much thought. And if you do like pause and take your time, even for a couple seconds, um, that's often just socially weird. Also with this kind of thing, people often, when you say it in passing, especially when you're doing the we version and talking about something else instead of making it the main point, see, when you make something the main point, then it's very standard that you then pause a little and you give the person a chance to respond. But when something is not the main point, then you keep talking until you get to the main point. Um, and at that point, it's already possibly 10, 20 seconds later and a lot harder for them to object. Like it's hard to object to something that isn't the most recent thing said. So like in this particular example, in the question, the why we do the latter comment was in the middle of the question. And if someone said that verbally out loud and said the whole thing, it would be harder to object to by the time they got to the end because it was in the middle. It's not impossible, it's just harder. And people aren't very skilled at this kind of thing. Like, they're not very good at being critical or dissenting or objecting to things. They Like, they're generally... Most people try to avoid conflict. That's how our culture works. It's really common. So... Most people are not very practiced at objecting to things and saying no and disagreeing with people. Like it's really common to avoid disagreements. So anything that makes disagreeing harder can be quite effective because people are already avoiding it in general and not very good at it. So any extra difficulty can often um, squash potential disagreement. Because people do try sometimes but it's often sort of like first steps and beginner steps and stuff. So extra difficulty can just make it too hard and they give up. All right, so those are my tangential thoughts on that phrase. Now, moving on to the question, it is about thinking from principles instead of from concretes. And my first answer from that is people do not reason from concretes to principles. Concretes do not imply principles. That's a lot like the myth of induction. So why do people think they do? Poor introspection and dishonesty. Being confused about how they think. Stuff like that's really common. Just as a logical matter, the concretes do not tell you what principles to think of. Like the information about the principles is not in the concretes. You have to come up with the principles yourself 
and check them against the concretes. Do they fit the concretes? Um, do they contradict any concretes? The concretes can help give you inspiration for um, for brainstorming. You can look at a bunch of concretes and say, okay, I see stuff like in this vague ballpark, I'll try to come up with some principles that have something to do with that. But the concretes can't like specifically tell you what principles to make. Um, you at some point have to do some sort of act of creativity, some act of creation where you create the principle. The concrete isn't doing that for you. And which concretes do people find interesting? Like, how do you know which concretes to care about or think about or brainstorm about? It's the ones which violate your expectations or stand out given the principles you already have. Like, you already have some way of looking at the world in which those concretes are the notable ones, the interesting ones, the ones worth more thought. So the principles come first that let you have some sort of perspective on the world, and then you use that perspective to look at concretes and decide which ones to think about more, and then use that to help you create uh, new and better principles or update your old ones. So one thing that's interesting here is what I've said is Popperian epistemology. And this question is, I believe, from an objectivist. But the objectivist, I think, I think what he's saying is in line with like a standard objectivist view, but I also think that it is in line with Popper, not with induction. So I thought that was interesting because he's saying, you know, don't try to reason from concrete, you should focus on principles. And that's the Popperian view, whereas the inductivist view is start with data and get principles or get general theories from data. And the Popperian view is start with theories and then data has a secondary role. So this is a point of overlap between uh, objectivist thinking and Popper. Um, it's just one of the, the non-induction parts of ind objectivist thinking. So, and then the questioner asks for various difficult things. They want examples uh, and real life examples and processes and differences that might lead to, so like what the outcomes are like. Uh, it's a lot of information. Um, it's a reasonable question. It's, it's good things to ask about. It's good things to want. Um, it's, it's useful, right? They're asking for the right things. It's just, it's not easy to give someone that stuff. The easiest types of examples to give in general are, on the one hand, toy examples, simplified examples. Examples where there aren't a lot of factors involved, and you basically design the example to illustrate your main point. Or, on the other hand, um, Examples where you actually have a real-world example that fits what you want to talk about. So the world has all the real rich details um, for you, and you don't have to like make them up. The hardest thing is making up complicated examples. Like You can make up a simple example, or you can use a real example where the complexity exists in reality, and you just look at it and analyze it. Um, but making up complex examples is hard. So... 
with those thoughts in mind, um, maybe I can make up a simple example and then try to think of a real world example. Also, um, thinking processes are one of the hardest things to make examples about in my experience. Um, they're hard to communicate to people and like show them how they work and stuff. Um, one of the things I try to do about that is make screencasts where I record me writing emails or I podcast and try to like think out loud and talk out loud. Like I just talked about some of my thoughts on examples, like instead of, um, making notes ahead of time, figuring out a good example to use. Um, I think out loud about what I'm thinking, like as I go along so I can share some of my thought process. I try to do that thing a lot of, do that in a lot of ways, um, to give people a better window into my thought processes especially with videos where you can see my screen and see what I'm writing and so on as I go along. There's a bunch of those on YouTube, by the way. That was how I practiced um, talking out loud originally, because I started philosophy as a writer, and then I made videos of me writing emails, and in the early videos, I don't talk very much. Um, I'll just talk occasionally when I have something to say, and a lot of the time you're just watching me type. Um, and then I gradually started talking more as I did them more. So it's a good way to practice and work into verbal communication uh, step by step. Because there was a there's a gap because I developed my ph philosophy persona and philosophy ideas um, primarily in a written way, and so I wasn't used to dealing with them verbally as much. Anyway, so yeah, thinking processes are, are hard to explain and hard to show people. And that's something I've been trying to help with on an ongoing basis by specifically making material that'll help with it. Um, there's also some on my Gumroad, which is my digital store. If you go to elliottemple.com, then on the sidebar, uh, you just click digital products and then some of these are the kind of thing I'm talking about, like behind the scenes, how I make videos. That one shows my process of making videos so you can like learn how I do things better. Um, instead of just like a written guide on like, here's how to make a video, you can actually watch my process. So I, I try to do things where you can see my process um, more. And there's a couple writing philosophy emails. Um, they're like the ones on YouTube, except the, the ones that cost money tend to be newer and I talk more. There's another one I specifically wanted to mention. Oh yeah, it's this one. It's called Videos Reading the Dream of Reason. And in this one, I demonstrate different reading techniques. So in one video, I use rapid serial visual, visual presentation. In another video, I use text-to-speech. In another one, I use skimming. And I also use text search, and I use reading topic sentences, and I use regular reading. So I was trying to show people more about my thinking processes and how I do philosophy by showing all the different ways I read things. Okay, trying to get back on topic. And note again, I don't think tangents are bad. Um, 
Like, I tangent on purpose. I want to just talk about things. Like, the point for me is more to talk about interesting things than to specifically answer the question. Um, questions are good. They give you a prompt. They give you something to go back to um, when you finish a point. Um, they, they bring up issues. But my overall purpose is to share ideas in general rather to answer the exact questions people asked. So um, if I think of things while I'm answering a question, then I'll just say them. And if I think they're interesting or important or worthwhile or whatever. So I do that on purpose. OK, so I was trying to do examples about thinking from principles or thinking from concretes. And I was going to start with simple examples. So sometimes people do the Captain Hindsight thing. You might have seen the South Park about it, where something goes wrong, and then they're like, oh, we need a principle that deals with this. So something goes wrong one time, and then after it's gone wrong, they want to put like a new rule in place or a new policy so it'll never happen again. Um, you see it with like the TSA, which is the, the people who screen uh, passengers for air flights. There's like one guy who put like a bomb in his shoe and now we all have to take our shoes off. Um, I'm not sure if that's necessarily wrong or not, like that maybe there could have been more bombs in shoes, but whether or not they're right in that example, you can imagine how if you react to everything by making a general policy, you're going to be wrong a lot. Like every time one thing happens, you make a, a new policy to prevent it in the future, you're going to do a lot of work unnecessarily on preventing things that weren't going to happen again anyways. So those would be examples of thinking from one concrete that already happened and then assuming it's going to happen a bunch more in the future. Um, that kind of thing is really common just all over the place. Like it happens with emails. People make a mistake in a philosophy discussion email and you point it out. And then sometimes they're like, okay, I will add to my checklist that every single time I write an email now, I will check for this exact problem. Because it happened this one time and they're like, well, I don't want it to happen again. So every time I write an email, I'll just checklist this one problem. And what happens is they get a checklist with like 50 things and they just stop doing them, um, all the ones that aren't recent. They end up only doing like the things that went wrong within like the last two weeks and they ignore all the other ones. And it's, it's a really bad process. Like they're not prioritizing which ones are likely to occur a lot of times in the future. Like those are the ones you want to be um, checking every email, not the ones that happened recently. So there's a lot of selective attention on recent concretes. That's a common problem. To deal with that better, you need some idea of like, why did that problem happen? If you have some understanding of the causes of the problem, then you can consider, is it going to recur? And if there's a risk that it's going to keep happening over and over, um, what should you do about it? Um, is there a way to prevent it from happening in the first place, like solve the underlying problem? Maybe you should do that. Or is it better to have a check in place where every time the problem could happen, you check for it to make sure that it didn't happen this time. You know, should you prevent it at the source or should you check for it downstream? Um, either one can be correct, it depends. But in order to make a good decision about that, you have to have some idea of what the cause is. 
One of the good things about downstream prevention is you can do it even if you don't know what the cause is. Like if you don't know why the problem happened, you can still catch it um, before it does its badness. Like if the problem is you do some sort of mistake in emails while you're writing them, um, you can catch it before you send them, before other people see it. Like even if you don't know like why that mistake happens, um, you can have a separate step where you check for it before you send it, and then you can fix the mistake before other people see it. So, but you don't want to do a lot of that. Um, that's like a, a last resort to just not understand what's going on and then put in special checks to, just to fix that specific thing. You only want to do that if it's like if it's happening a bunch and you can't figure out anything better to do. But you do not want to do that if it's just it happened once and you're like, well, I'm scared it'll happen again. I have no idea what's going on. So every single time I do this, I'll just check for it. That's a bad idea. OK, so another example related to thinking from principles or concretes. Let's take minimum wage laws. So someone who's thinking from concretes might be like, if the minimum wage was higher, I would get paid more. Or if it's not them personally who's making a minimum wage, they could be like, if the minimum wage was higher, those oppressed poor black people could get paid more, which is kind of racist to, like, you see a lot on the left their sort of paternalistic attitude to how blacks are victims can be kind of racist where they think blacks are incompetent or are the ones who make minimum wage or are the ones who need help. Like thinking that blacks as a group need help is kind of identifying people by a racial characteristic and then thinking those are the weak, incompetent victims. Um, which is not entirely false. And like, because race correlates with culture and culture... Um, results in things like more or less financial success. I mean, I think that's how it works. I don't think that race or like skin color or blood or genes directly cause black people to be poorer on average, but I think that uh, there is a culture that is associated with the race and it is the culture has some flaws in it. Anyway, there's a there's an interesting video because a bunch of like left wing people said that voter ID laws are racist. Asking for you to bring your ID when you want to vote in a U.S. election is racist. And the reason they said it's racist is because black people like don't have IDs or don't know how to get IDs or something. And so there's a video, and it it's basically interviewing a bunch of people on the street. It's from um, Amy Horowitz. And so first he starts with a bunch of like white leftists. He's asking them about it. And they're like, yeah, a lot of black people don't have IDs and don't know where the DMV is and don't know how to get an ID. And that would be a big burden for them to make them get an ID in order to vote. And it was just like ridiculous. And then the second half is he asks a bunch of black people, like, do you have an ID? Do you know where the DMV is? And they're all just like, what the fuck? Of course. So that's one where like uh, 
there's no actual problem with black people or black culture. Like they just have IDs and can go to the DMV and that's fine. There's no, there's no issue there. Okay, so about minimum wage laws. So some people are just like, yeah, if if the minimum wage law was higher, I'd get more money or someone else I care about would get more money or whatever. It would help poor people or it would help me or whatever. And they're just looking concretely at what's in front of them. Higher minimum wage law, higher wage rate. And they don't look at the unseen, as Bastiat calls it, um, the, the less obvious effects that are less concretely in front of them. Like that raising wages means fewer jobs available because there are a smaller number of employers who can afford to pay $15 an hour than $10 an hour. At the $10 an hour rate, um, there's more jobs that, because there are jobs that have a productivity between $10 and $15 an hour, you know? Um, ignoring like Someone has to be more productive than what you pay them, like, because they get money, but also the business has to have some benefit. Like, if you paid them exactly what they were worth, there'd be zero benefit for the business. So it has to be some some profit for the business too. But anyways, just like ignoring that, setting that aside. Basically, if, just to keep the numbers simpler, there are jobs where the productivity is like $12 an hour. You know, you'd be happy to pay them $12 an hour, but you can't pay them $13 an hour because the job doesn't produce enough. So if the minimum wage is set to 15, then that job just doesn't exist and someone doesn't get hired. But someone not getting hired is unseen. Like the person who just doesn't have a job at all is not concretely in front of you the way someone getting paid more is. Also, with minimum wage stuff, people try to reason from concretes in another way, which is they say like in this city, the following minimum wage law was passed in this year. And then here's a bunch of data about wages and employment rates and so on. And sometimes they'll claim that the numbers come out making minimum wage look good, like minimum wage went up and it didn't increase unemployment or whatever. They'll say that's what the concrete data shows. And that kind of reasoning from concretes is very problematic. It's not the right way to look at the issue. And the problem with that is primarily that there are a million factors. Um, other things happened besides the minimum wage law being raised, including inflation of the currency. Like the government prints more money, the currency gets devalued. So as long as minimum wage increases are happening at a uh, slower rate than the government is devaluing the currency, then they're not going to increase unemployment. Because if you raise the minimum wage law from $10 to $20, I mean, sorry, from 10 to 15, but the government um, doubles the money supply, so now it takes $20 to be worth the old $10, um, then someone making $10 in the past is making the equivalent of $20 today, and the minimum wage law has gone up from 10 to 15. Um, it hasn't kept up with inflation. So essentially, the minimum wage has gone down, even though the number of dollars went up. Um, that's a common thing that happens, where the minimum wage law, they don't have a large effect when they're low, 
because it's like I was going to pay you more than $1 anyways. Um, so if the minimum wage law is low enough, it doesn't do much. And if you raise it, but you're not raising it a lot, um, you can raise it to an amount that used to be high, but it's no longer high due to inflation. So it doesn't have much effect. So that's one of the reasons that looking at that data can be misleading. But also there are just a ton of other factors. Like maybe there was some bad law that was harming business, making it harder to start a business. And that law got repealed. And that is why, and that had a larger effect than the minimum wage change. Um, there's just, there's so many millions of things going on in like a city or a region or whatever that is very hard to say uh, to tie together the results you get and specifically the minimum law, wage law change. So a better way to look at it is from principles, from understanding causes, um, how things can work logically, gives you a much better perspective to look at the data from. So an example of a cause is if you raise the minimum wage law, then that causes some jobs to be unprofitable for employers because they don't provide as much value as the minimum wage. And therefore, you're creating a large economic incentive for those employers not to offer those jobs to fire people or refrain from hiring people, like don't expand. Um, like logically that makes sense. You can think about it and see why it, things would work that way. So that gives you a better understanding than looking at the data and then hoping that there were no other factors that mess it up. Another relevant principle, which you wouldn't understand if you only looked at concrete data, is a minimum wage law is using violence. The government is backed by a gun and is telling you, if you do this, you're breaking the law. So you cannot do certain actions. It is the suppression of freedom. It's like literally oppression and tyranny. It's telling people that two consenting adults cannot do the following interaction. You know, it's banning certain ways for people to associate with each other, even if everyone involved wants to do it uh, and does it on a voluntary basis. It's preventing some peaceful cooperation and interaction between people at gunpoint. So that's bad. Even if it worked out economically, it would still be bad. Um, reality is not full of contradictions like that. Like it's not going to be bad, but work economically. Like it's violence doesn't work economically. Um, so like all, all the things line up nicely together, like peace and economic prosperity, like fit together. They don't contradict each other. Um, And also, if you only look at concrete results like someone got paid more, you're not thinking through what all the issues are. You know, you're just staring at that particular concrete. But you should think about um, just because they got paid more, are they better off? Not necessarily. Maybe their boss said, well, now that the wages have gone up, I want you to do like a bit of extra work or take on a bit more responsibility or something 
to earn that raise that I have to give you. And maybe the person um, feels pressured into it because they want to keep the job. And that's a, that they're like, well, that seems reasonable. Okay. They're, they can't really say no to it. But they would have been happier, potentially, like not getting that promotion. It's sort of like the government forced a promotion on them. And now they get paid more, but they do a bit more work. Um, and they liked just, you know, they maybe they thought, I don't need a lot of money, and I like having an easy job. So they don't want this sort of forced promotion. Maybe they had, uh, maybe they value a flexible schedule. And they were willing to take a lower wage in order to work fewer hours or um, choose what hours to work more. And the minimum wage law, because of the minimum wage law, they can't find jobs like that as easily. They have a harder time finding a job that's like, oh yeah, work whenever you want, choose your own hours. Um, you only have to work 10 hours a week, um, but we don't pay a ton. You know, maybe they just find it harder to find jobs like that. Those jobs stop existing. And so they, they get a job that pays more, but has working conditions they like less and they're less happy. And then you, you're looking at the concrete statistics and what do you see? They're employed and they're making more money. So you think they're benefiting, but maybe they're unhappy about it. Maybe they would have been employed and making, making enough money to be happy anyways, while having a better lifestyle that they liked more where they could pursue their passion during off hours more. So one of the things that you miss if you try to look from concretes is causes. In this case, like what is causing someone to get a lower wage? One of the causes of a low wage is doing work that's just not worth a lot. And what happens if you raise the minimum wage to the work that's just not worth as much as the new minimum? Employers do not want to hire people for that. They want to fire everyone and just not have that work done because it's not worth the price. So that's not going to help people, is it? And then what are other causes of people having low wages? Um, wanting flexibility, wanting other things besides wages, like good working conditions or setting your own hours. Those things have value to people, um, but they're less convenient for the employer. So you get a bit lower wages in return for that other stuff. There's other benefits that are non-wage benefits. And minimum wage screws with that as well. In order to get those kind of non-wage benefits while being over the minimum wage, you have to do something more productive than you had to before. So like... If you're working for $10 an hour, but you're also getting $5 an hour worth of like extra benefits, then you have to be productive at a rate of $15 an hour. And then the employer is happy for you to have $10 an hour of pay and $5 an hour of like extras because you're doing $15 an hour of work. Right? So that works great. You're happy. They're happy. And then what happens if the minimum wage is set to $15 an hour, which is the amount you're productive, right? Someone might think that's fine because you're productive enough to make $15 an hour. However, if you want $5 an hour worth of extras 
and the minimum wage is $15 an hour. Now you have to be productive at a rate of $20 an hour um, so that you can get $15 of actual salary plus $5 an hour of extras. So even people who are as productive as the minimum wage or more can still get screwed over by a minimum wage law because it prevents them from taking part of their salary as non-salary, as something other than money. What else causes people to get low pay? Um, competition from a lot of workers. Like if there's 500 people applying for the same job, the employer is going to be like, well, whoever will take only $3 an hour can have it, you know? It'll get bid down like an auction. And whoever can do a good job and is willing to take the least pay is going to get the job. Like that makes sense. And Okay, so if that is like a causal thing that happens in reality, what happens when you set a minimum wage law? Then the employer can't decide by who's willing to take the lowest pay of the people who can do a good job. He has to decide who gets the job in a different way. So when, pe when the workers could compete against each other by being willing to take lower pay, then the most desperate person could get the job. Um, again, of the people who are qualified and will do a good job and so on. You don't want a desperate person who's um, not going to do a good job. So that's actually a good thing, that the person who's willing to take the least pay for the job is the person who needs it the most, who has the worst alternative options, who's the closest to starvation or um, has the least ability to get hired at any other job or whatever. Like the person who needs it the most will take the least pay. Um, so that's actually really good. You want the job to get allocated to the person who most badly needs it um, among people who are going to do a roughly equally good job. So that, that's beneficial um, to society and it makes sense and, it's, you know, and it helps the people who need help the most. Um, and it's beneficial to the employer because they get to pay less and make more profit. Okay, so that's all pretty good. And that is a, a causal reason that people take low pay. Um, you can understand, like, in principle, what's going on there, why it makes sense, how logically it fits together. And what does the minimum wage law do to this? It makes the employer, it ruins that system. Um, you got, like, 300 people who say, well, I'll take minimum wage. And then the employer has to choose between them in a different way. Um, it's not who needs the job the most because they can't signal that by um, being willing to take lower pay. So what will the employer look for? The person who will do the most unpaid overtime, um, the person who can do more than the job requires in some way, who has like extra skills, um, the person who's the most subservient and can be pushed around. There are a lot of other things. Or a lot of times the, they'll hire a friend or a friend's friend or a friend's friend's friend. Um, They'll trade favors. They're like, well, I can't, I can't pay less than this. Um, I have to pay the full minimum wage. But if I hire someone as a favor, then I, can, uh, then I can get a favor back later. I can get an extra bonus. So instead of uh, paying a lower wage rate, what I can make up for that with is getting a favor from someone being owed a favor. Um, so when you don't let the market decide things with supply and demand um, auctions setting wages you 
create some sort of black market or secondary market where other things happen. Um, who's willing to take the fewest vacation days? You know, you got factors like that deciding who gets the job. Um, so you're not actually helping the workers. Um, you're making things get decided in a shittier way that is more clandestine and it's more, uh, it tends to be more favorable to um, established people, people who are already in power or uh, respected in the community or whatever else, like influential people, people who have friends. Generally, this kind of thing is really biased against people who have no friends, um, so they can't call in favors. Um, and it helps the, the more mainstream people, the well-connected people, the people who are good at socializing and and getting along with people and so on. It's like if you can't, um, right, also just if you can't say, well, I'll do the job for a dollar less per hour, then another really, really common thing that employers will hire on is, all right, if everyone costs the same and they can all do the job well, what am I going to look at next? I'm going to look at um, who is culturally similar to me? Like who would I like to be friends with? Who would I like to hang out with? Like I'll just hire people similar to me that I get along with easier. Um, I'll hire my kind of people. I'll hire people who are good at socializing. I'll hire charismatic people. Um, I'll hire hot girls. You know, people do stuff like that because there's no penalty. Um, because the, the ugly Indian immigrant is not able to say, all right, she's prettier than me, but I'll, I really want this job. I'll work hard and I'll do it for a bit less money. He's not able to compete on that way. You take away that way of competing, but the minimum wage law does not prevent competing by being pretty or uh, being better at English or being more charismatic or whatever. So it gives advantages um, on all those sort of social factors, which is not a thing you want to introduce into the economy. You don't want the economy to start running on social factors, friendship, charisma, etc. Or at the very least, those should be factors that have to compete against money sometimes, um, rather than just like you're no longer allowed to compete on money. You can only compete on the social factors. That's that's terrible. So those are that's some causal analysis with an example. Oh, one other thing about this. When you think from principles, um, that generally involves knowing what the principles are more. Because, okay, so everyone has like principles and concepts, whether they know it or not. Everyone has a thinking method. Um, you have to have a thinking method to think. You're thinking according to some method whenever you think. And if you understand what it is and you're aware of it, um, and you, you like study it and you try to improve it and so on, then you will be able to have a better chance to find flaws in it and find opportunities to make it better and understand the best ways to use it, um, you'll be able to critically analyze it more. Whereas if you're just focusing on concretes and you're not really aware of what your thinking method is, then you're going to have a much harder time um, finding the mistakes in your thinking method and improving it. So yeah, everyone has a thinking method. The question is, do you think critically about it or do you just sort of use it blindly and unconsciously?